show already has enough controversy for us. I don't think we need to get into the whole tongues conversation. So I believe uh, Mr. Joel Sexton has already called into the show. Um, I do appreciate those that of you that are those of you that are tuned in. I just want to take out an opportunity to uh, lift up praise to our mighty God and pray for Joel and I as we enter into a pre-debate discussion this evening. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do indeed thank you for the privilege, Lord, to be on the airwaves and to uh, have this opportunity marked out to have discussion regarding your word. Lord, uh, while I believe Joel and I are in agreement that teachings that are not in line with your word are not encouraging or edifying, and they do need to be demolished and or rebuked, Lord. So uh, we come on here with passion, knowing that there's areas of difference that we are passionate about. And uh, Lord, we trust and we know that you have preceded us in this conversation and that you will give both of us clarity of mind. You will give both of us the grace that we would both need to grow um, in all things pertaining to you, Lord. We know that you have already provided those things. Those are areas that we are in agreement. Um, it's the aspects of how we've come to understand all that you've provided, Lord, that uh, are up for debate, so to speak. So, Lord, again, I just ask that you go before us, and I trust that you already have. And... Uh, Give us both clarity of mind to present the points that we would like to as succinctly as we would like and to give you all the praise and glory in all things. Lord, again, we thank you for your spirit and your word as we know we would be stuck leaning upon our own understanding um, without it. So thank you, Lord. We magnify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to go ahead and bring on Joel and make sure our mics are working. Hey, Joel, how you doing? How are you doing, Michael? All right, fantastic. And can you hear me well? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you well. That's awesome. Cool. Good stuff. Well, thanks. Thanks, man, for uh, taking some time out to join me and uh, to get into some well, of this stuff. Thank you for having me, Mike. Cool. Thank you for having me. All right. No problem, man. It's it's a pleasure. You know, thanks for your passion. Thanks for... Uh, you know, studying, and, and that's why I thought that this would be a great opportunity. You know, again, regardless to all the things that we see on the internet and on Facebook, um, I've seen you for the last, you know, I believe it's probably about eight to 10 years at this point. Um, and I've seen you online, and you've always been very passionate. So, um, you know, to all the other stuff that we see happening on social media, I, that doesn't matter to me. What really matters is that you've been a man of conviction. You've been a man that studied. I've tried to do that to the best of my ability as well. And here we are, and we want to get into these things, and uh, I believe that you're an apt person to uh, defend your position. Oh, well, I appreciate that, Michael, and um, uh, uh, yeah, um, you know, these are important issues that we're discussing, especially tonight, the gospel, um, and the hope of uh, Ephesians chapter 4, um, um, they're pretty much the, uh, the gospel's most important uh, topic uh, we can discuss, I believe, um, as Christians. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Well, cool, man. I, I kind of wrote out some notes. Um, if you don't mind, do you mind if I just review them with you real quick to kind of show you the goal of this discussion from my perspective and uh, prayerfully you'll share yours and then we can just get right into it. Does that work for you? 
Yeah, I, I, I jotted down a few notes um, this afternoon here, Mike. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, you go ahead and read what you got to read. All right, cool. So one of the first things that I want to uh, do is I want to mark out what exactly we're debating when it comes to God's judgment. I believe you and I both know that when we talk about the judgment of God, people get all sorts of you know pictures in their mind. So I'm hoping that we will mark out our agreements and our areas of disagreement. And, uh, you know, I think of things that we've been in discussion about, for example, the second Exodus motif, preterism, uh, AD 70 judgment and things of that sort. So I want to get into that. I want to talk about some of the nitty gritty of what we're looking to debate. And uh, then I'm hoping that we will get into our areas of disagreement regarding the gospel. And as I had seen your recent posts, on Facebook saying some things about the full preterist or corporate body uh, gospel. Um, and then of course, getting into that discussion that you just said about Ephesians four, four the one hope. And then my last two points would be uh, just looking at some texts that we might believe are up for debate. I know you've mentioned Romans chapter one, uh, as you have done an outline of that text. So uh, I'm imagining that would have something to do with our discussion, the wrath of God. And uh, also the last thing would be, what do both of us look to establish and or rebuke during this debate? You know, I have a Titus chapter one, verse nine in mind where it talks about a minister and, and perfectly we're in agreement there that both of us are entering into this with the goal to not only minister to ourselves to grow in our understanding, but also to minister to those around us to do what Titus one nine says. The role of a minister is to encourage the saints in sound doctrine and to rebuke those that oppose it. So, that's my point. That's kind of what I'm looking to get out of this. And uh, I'd like to hear what you have, and then we can just jump right into talking. Okay, Michael. Um, well, I just have a few notes for tonight. Um, I wasn't really thinking ahead to the debate. Any uh, any points I wanted to bring up uh, uh, for the debate, but I have notes for tonight. I have a few points, but they would take maybe five minutes each uh, to develop. I have maybe two or three points I would uh, like to make tonight. Um, uh, when it comes to these issues, um, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the gospel and, and, okay. and the text that you refer to in Ephesians four four, uh, the okay, one cool. So, could we do this? Can we just start out, you know, not spending a lot of time talking about our upcoming debate? However, just marking out some little brief points. You know, again, I just want to hear from your perspective. You know, what are we debating? What 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 essentially are you looking to? Um, show that we agree on, as I know you have said that you're, you adhere to partial preterism. So where are we in agreement? And then where are we in disagreement as with me as a full preterist? Oh, that's an excellent question, Michael. Um, yeah, the, that, that comes up a lot. A lot of people ask that question. What is the differences between partial and full preterism? Um, basically partial preterism, um, of today, um, of the last, you know, 50, 60 years, um, has changed his view in particular of the book of revelation you could say uh, Rome was no longer the uh, harlot but now Jerusalem. um and so there's been some development there and but basically partial preterism um and they have to qualify partial because before max king it, there was only preterism so um, they have to, unfortunately they, they have to qualify we have to qualify us as partial preterists but a partial preterist would say Okay, um, Matthew chapter 24, and maybe all of it is 
Mark's 25, it's fulfilled in AD 70. Much of Jesus' teaching has been fulfilled in AD 70. The bulk of Revelation has been fulfilled in AD 70. And they, the debate comes with the last three chapters of Revelation. Um, some would say chapter 21 and 22 is future. The new heavens and new earth and, and Zion being restored is future. Some would say it's past. Um, and so there's, there's a, a debate there. And so the, the new heavens and new earth, it's kind of debated within full credit. Revelation 21 through 22, some will believe both are 80, 70, some both are future, one future, one past. So the bulk of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 through 19 is most definitely fulfilled in AD 70 by, by partial preterist definition. Um, and maybe chapter 21 and 22. For me, I take all of it except for chapter 20, verse 4, all along. I do take chapter 21 and 22 as AD 70. And for me, personally, and not just his kingdom parables, but in his all his parables in general. Um, basically, as uh, um, implicitly, explicitly in the kingdom parables, he refers to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Implicitly, in his parables, chastising the Pharisees, he is telling them the time is coming. So, the bulk of Jesus' teaching, uh, the bulk of his teaching in the synoptics, I would say, is AD 70, um, not John. Um, I would say the bulk of Hebrews is AD 70, uh, but Revelation. So, yeah, I, I, I'm what you would call a strong partial preterist, where I take a very strong stance on fulfillment. Um, and so the disagreement comes in with full preterism, where the full preterist says, well, the second coming, um, uh, the new heavens, new earth, and judgment, and, and resurrection have already taken place in AD 70. So that is where the difference is. And for me, the two main points of difference is the judgment and the resurrection. And the judgment of mankind is what we will be, uh, we agree to and what we will be debating in August. Right. So in an area, I guess, where I would, I'm hoping for a little bit of clarity is we have, apparently we have an agreement regarding the second Exodus motif found in the New Testament, right? Out of all the promises that we find in the prophets, um, all, all of these great promises, the second Exodus motif is my favorite by far. I, I started okay. uh, writing a manuscript some years ago, probably eight years ago on dispensationalism and the promises. And I, when I got into the second Exodus, I mean, I, I just started writing and studying and writing and studying. So that's most definitely a favorite motif of mine uh, by far. Yeah. It's, it, it's a beautiful right. scene. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I guess the question I have is when we look at that and we look at the, the parallels, right? You have Israel coming out of bondage in Egypt and coming into the promised land after they go through the wilderness period. Then in the New Testament, we have people being saved from the bondage to sin, and we see a wilderness period, as the preterist would point out there, uh, from what is it? Would it be Jesus's ministry to uh, the end of Jesus's ministry up till AD 70? And then you have the promised land, which the full preterist would assert is our reality in the fully established new covenant, the kingdom of God, um, that which Christ came in His kingdom to bring. And for me, that lines up with a beautiful second exodus motif and i i just cannot find in my understanding room for another detail to add on to that that we're going to have to enter into for example a yet future 
coming of the Lord, resurrection, and so forth. I, I would just demand by consistency with the text that the second Exodus motif establishes not a 2,000-year-later reality of the kingdom, but now. And I guess that's where I'm confused as to how someone can say they agree with the second Exodus motif, however, not be convinced that we are in the established promised land and all the promises. Okay, well, first off, Michael, one can agree with that there is such a thing as a second Exodus, Exodus motif found within the New Testament. We have commentaries and scholars that have written on that at, at length. Uh, uh, so um, uh, you don't have to be a preterist to believe in that second Exodus motif. The dispensationalists believe in it. Um, but, um, yeah, I do believe there is a second Exodus motif that is fulfilled in 1870. Uh, but I do believe the kingdom is unfolding. Um, I, I do believe there was that 40-year period we see in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 411. Um, we see uh, scholars like F.F. F. Bruce, uh, who was it, Tarar, uh, who wrote on Hebrews, that said this is AD 70. Um, some of the older commentators, commentaries, commentators uh, before uh, Schofield came in, and dispensationally, mm -hmm popular they, they took matthew 24 as 80 70 and they took hebrews 3 and 4 as 80 70 the second exodus so there's no doubt about it i did a, a video on that recently the second exodus motif in hebrews um and i concentrated on hebrews chapter 3 7 through 4 through 11 hebrews chapter 10 25 and following hebrews chapter 12 18 and following hebrews chapter 10 10 and 13 I think the second Exodus is found in those passages, and they all refer to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, and so we do see the second Exodus motif all throughout the New Testament, from, from Matthew to Revelation. In Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. What does he do? He goes up to the mountain, and he gives his law. What's that? That's Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Then they get the law at Sinai, but Jesus gives his law as the new Moses. Um, and so we see this is from Matthew right through to Revelation. 1 Corinthians um, 10, of course, uh, Romans chapter 6, our union with Christ. Um, we have that second Exodus motif there. Um, so it's found replete throughout the New Testament, showing, A, that dispensationalism is wrong for saying that the promises were put off at the cross, and that the promises the church in Israel are completely distinct. The promises have no bearing on the church. Um and so, uh, and so, yeah, I, that's how I would understand it, Michael. I forget what I was going to okay, say cool. after that. No, it's all right. I, I get what you're saying. So uh, I guess, and this may bring us into your points. Um, I guess my plain and simple question is, if we're in agreement in a lot of areas, what am I missing? You know, what is it about my position that puts me in error? And I imagine that may bring us into some of the points that you had wanted to bring up. So uh, please. Okay, uh, let me see here, Michael. Um, yeah, well, first, um, what I found interesting, um, Michael, uh, the hope of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, is directly tied to the believing one. It's tied into justification, election, and union with Christ, the gospel in general. And this word, uh, El Peace, in the Greek, is found 60 times. 49 of those times are found in Paul. Therefore, 
Therefore, by necessity, we must first establish and define what the gospel is before we can understand what this hope is and the result of the becoming a believing Christian. And since both are problems today, I think we should probably go with the gospel then. The, again, justification, union with Christ, election are all necessary components for this hope to become hope and reality in any, anyone. Um, hope, again, is found, the same Greek word is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, in the context of justification. The same Greek word is found in Colossians 1, 27, speaking of union with Christ. And of course, the same Greek word is found in our text here today, Ephesians 4, 4, which, which speaks of our calling, the same as Ephesians 1, 8, our calling. Um, that's election. Um, and so this hope is is so much tied into the gospel and in just justification, union with Christ, election specifically. That's just how I kind of want to start things off, I guess, uh, Mike. Okay. And uh, I would generally agree with that statement. Uh, as we look into Ephesians, obviously I would establish, I'm sure you've seen some of my blogs, that that hope being spoken about there in Ephesians 4.4 4 is the same hope the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 28 that he is in chains for. And then the same gospel or the same hope that we see in Acts chapter 24 and 26, which is establishing the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead as the one hope. Okay. And that would be my, my position there on the one hope. And yeah, um, so I, I don't do you, know. Do you believe the hope is the gospel? Do I believe the one hope is the gospel? For sure. Absolutely. The Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel and he says, I am in chains. What is it? Acts chapter 28, verse. I'll turn to it real quickly. And I'm sure you know this text. You've, you've, seen, you've seen us use this text in discussions before, where the Apostle Paul talking about his imprisonment and the reason he's. On trial, he says here in Acts chapter 28 that he is in chains for the hope of Israel, which, again, would be the gospel that he proclaimed all throughout his ministry. We see that again, asserting the same text, Acts chapter 24 and Acts chapter 26. What gospel did Paul preach, do you think, Michael, throughout his ministry? Can you define it for us? Sure. Um, let's see here. I can look at, well, through some of his letters that we have, um, we can take a look at the, if we're not going to use the book of Acts, we can look at the book of Romans, for example, uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. He says, he says, I wish that I were cursed, cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced ancestry of Christ. And then he goes into, as we keep moving through the book of Romans, ultimately at the book of Romans chapter 15, he tells you that these truths, the gospel is the fulfillment of the old covenant promises. And these promises were being fulfilled right there in that first century so that the Gentiles, right, those that were coming into um, the faith would glorify God for his mercy and that he would, God would show himself faithful to the promises that were made to the patriarchs. Romans chapter 15, verse 8. That would be the gospel that Paul, that's, again, that's just two texts from the book of Romans. And we could go through and we can look at the areas that the Apostle Paul preaches in Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 26, and look at the specific things 
that he, he preaches about. He says, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. And talking about the resurrection of the dead there in Acts chapter 26, 6 through 8. So yes, I would assert that, and the verse I was talking about before is Acts chapter 28, verse 20. He says, for this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. So again, I would make mm-hmm. the point, yes, the one hope of Ephesians 4, 4 is the one hope that the Apostle Paul preached continually was the fulfillment of the old covenant promises and obviously including and so much so as it seems through the apostle Paul's preaching would be defined as the resurrection of the dead. Okay. Um, let me see here. Uh, Romans chapter nine, uh, verses three and four, the promises and covenants given to Israel um, for Paul, that's not the gospel. Um, Romans 15, he, uh, uh, he does not uh, he does not give the gospel in Romans chapter 15. Um, Romans is Paul's systematic, it's the most systematic book we have in the New Testament. It's the most systematic statement of the gospel we have in the New Testament. And it, we break it down in different sections and subjects. Romans 9 through 11 is, is after he presented the gospel. Romans chapter 1 through 8 is the gospel, especially Romans chapter 1 through 5, justification, depravity, then sanctification, 6 through 8. 9 and 11 is dealing with Israel and the nations. Um, so uh, so we, we have to go back, Michael. I mean, uh, the thematic statement of Romans, Romans 1, 16 and 17, that Paul expounds in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, that's the gospel. What, what was the gospel that Paul preached in Acts chapter 13? His very first message he ever preached, Paul. He preached in Antioch, that we're no longer justified by Moses, or, or Moses has no bearing on us, as we are justified by faith in Christ. That's the gospel Amen. Paul preached, justification by faith. Well, amen. Absolutely. And I would, again, I would come into agreement with that. I think we're saying the same thing, but you're just elaborating a bit further. Um, Again, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant promises as being made evident through the New Testament. So we would be in agreement there. Absolutely. And then when you see the outworking of that, the way that that salvation came to bear upon people, that gospel came to save people was by faith in Jesus Christ. So again, I would be in full agreement there. I, I don't know that we would be in disagreement. Well, I mean, uh, you don't get the gospel in Romans 9 or 15. You get the gospel in Romans chapter 3 through 5. I mean, that, you know, if you want to go to Romans and get the gospel, go, go to 3 through 5. That's, that's, where, that's where he presents the gospel, you know. Um, but um, with this understanding, Michael, your understanding of this resurrection of the hope of Israel, um, uh, and your understanding of this, uh, and I'm just trying to figure this out. If if the, if this is, are you saying that the resurrection, the whole the resurrection is part of the gospel? Absolutely. And you know again, is that, is that part of the gospel? I'm sorry. Say that again. Oh, sorry. Is is the general resurrection of Acts? Is that uh, is that the part of the gospel? Absolutely. Okay. Again, the text I would use here, just to bring up a text, would be Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, a text where the Apostle Paul 
says what the gospel is. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God for salvation unto everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The reason why it says to the Jew first is, again, the reason why I brought up that text in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 15 is that the promises are being confirmed to the Jew first, just like you had brought up in Acts chapter 13. They preached to the Jew first to confirm the promises of the Old Covenant. That's what we're talking about here, that one hope, the hope all throughout the Old Testament that the prophets proclaimed. And and, and I'm sorry, Moses and the prophets, as per the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24. Um, that's the gospel. So, you know, again, I, I would assert that it has everything to do with the resurrection of the dead that was promised to the Old Covenant saints. And it has everything to do with what you're pointing out, that it has to do with faith by justification, you know, I'm sorry, justification by faith in Christ Jesus. We, we would definitely be in agreement there. Well, what, so if in fact, okay, if in fact um, part of the gospel is on the corporate body view understanding that the resurrection took place in eighty seventy, under the corporate body understanding, if, if that is so, does that mean that not all non-corporate body Christians do not have a gospel today? Because you don't have a gospel. You either have the gospel or you don't. By, by your reasoning, by your reasoning, we have a false gospel since we don't have the resurrection understanding that you do. Only a, a few minority Christians uh, covenant eschatology or predators resurrection is part of the gospel if that's true that you guys have the true gospel we have a false gospel and we are left with the false gospel right you know, you know and i have to say this early on when i first came into full preterism i would often use galatians chapter one as a text to uh, argue against my futurist brethren right and uh i would point out that they have a different gospel and then, as I believe our discussion just pointed out, as I've matured in my study and as I've really looked at what essentially the proclamation of good news was in that time, it was that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all that was hoped for throughout the prophets and all that will be hoped for in our future now. And again, that's very evident as we look through the scriptures. So I don't know that I would say to you that you have a different gospel. I would say that you would be, you know, again, as I believe will be revealed, I would say that you'll, you may be guilty of inserting false teachings into the scripture. However, I don't know that I would accuse you of having a different gospel if you believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the one hope and that by putting your faith in him, that you can be a part of that reality. So, no, I don't know that I would assert that you have a different gospel because, again, the gospel, very simply put, is as you had asserted before, justification by faith in Christ Jesus. True in the first Amen. century and true today. Um, yeah, well, I'm not saying that you're saying that, Mike, but what I'm saying is, Michael, is that um, that that's where that's where you're that's where it is. That's where we're at right now. If resurrection is part of the gospel, and the resurrection is corporate Israel being raised in AD seventy, and most Christians don't believe that. Then they have another gospel. It's a simple most Christians, well, no, it's not because most Christians do understand. They do believe that. They just don't understand or qualify it in that way. For example, and and you know this very well. When I get into discussions with people and I say they say what is a preterist? I say well I believe that Jesus Christ came 
to fulfill all the old covenant promises. What does the future say to me? Amen. And I'm like, right. I'm like, so, and I usually don't do that because I'm not a bully with my understanding. However, uh, obviously what I would like to do in those moments is say, well, do you believe that Jesus Christ fulfilled the promise of his coming? Do you believe that Jesus Christ fulfilled the promise of the resurrection of the dead? Do you believe that Jesus Christ uh, fulfilled the promise of his coming in judgment? And if you don't, then you do not believe that Jesus Christ came to fulfill all the old covenant promises or that you believe he's delayed and deferred those fulfillments. And obviously, I don't want to bully somebody in that manner. But yes, I do believe that the church is in error due to the fact that they are not understanding the details of you know, of eschatology. Now, do I believe that that puts somebody outside the faith? Absolutely not, because I understand that most people believe Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies. They just don't understand the details of how that all comes together. And that's what I would accuse the futurist of. That's what, again, as a partial preterist, that's what I would accuse you of. It's just not putting all the details together in a systematic way that is more consistent with what we see in Scripture. Well, I've I seen your live feed there yesterday, Michael, responded to my live feed, uh, or the other day there, and, um, uh, and you made the point that you have the consistent view. Um, I, I'm not sure if you re recollect, but I took notes as I watched your video um, uh, for, for this discussion today. Um, but yeah, you, you said you have the consistent view. And I said, I said to myself, okay, that, that, that's fine. Um, but uh, if we look back uh, 400 years ago, um, after the Reformation got started, a few generations later, uh, after the Calvinists got going, what, what, what do we have? We have Calvinists that say, we're the consistent Calvinists. And yet they said the gospel does not need to be preached anymore. You see, they're the consistent Calvinists, but now, we're, now they're known as hyper-Calvinists. They're still around today. The mid-acts dispensationalists, or the hyper-dispensationalists. Um, uh, the dispensationalists, uh, uh, or the hyper-dispensationalists would say, hey, we're the consistent ones. We're using the Israel church distinction, the second of the three main pillars, hermeneutic dispensationalism, is the Israel church distinction, we're using that consistently. Um, and they would say the church didn't start at Pentecost. In Acts 2, they would say it started in Acts 9 or 13 or 28, depending on the version of mid-Acts, the hyper you're using. And they would say Paul preached a different gospel than Peter. Paul's seven Christian epistles are for us. That's all what that's what consistency can do to something. Yes. You can take a movement, uh, uh, classic dispensationalism, and say we're going to be we're the real consistent ones. And look at the mess they made with Peter and Paul preaching two gospels, and we only have 59 books today. Calvinists, we don't have to preach the gospel. And so this is where, where the problem of consistency and, and bragging, oh, we're the consistent ones, when in fact it led not just not just Calvinism into heresy or dispensationalism, but now preterism is into heresy over the understanding of we need to be totally consistent in our fallible thinking that we can actually comprehend um, and put together every text together ever so neatly. Um, that just this will not work. We are still in our fallen nature. We're fallible man. Amen. And I would agree with that. You know, I, I want to bring up uh, two quotes that influence my understanding of the gospel um, and, and are, so, are a sort of response to what you had just brought about with uh, church history and church error. 
it would be this. The first one is by a name both you and I know very well, Max King. And he had said, it is strange indeed how frequently the distortions of the gospel's message in later church history have been appealed to by interpreters of scripture as though they are the historical framework for understanding Paul and other writers of the New Testament. But the test for the rightness or wrongness of any interpretation of scripture is not what the church fathers believed, nor how close to the apostolic time such a view can be traced in so-called church history. To preserve the original original purity of the gospel, it must always be read, understood, and preached in relation to the framework of history out of which it was originally preached. And again, that's what the full preterist is simply asserting. Our consistency isn't consistency to a system, um, you know, again, like a hyper-Calvinist, but rather consistency with the biblical narrative. You know, again, I, I love what Tom Holland, uh, Tom Holland has a couple books about Pauline, Pauline theology, and he says, he says, to understand why it was so natural for Jews and Gentiles to accept the teachings of the apostles, we need to understand what the Jews had been waiting for. And as a full preterist, I had somebody come up to me the other day and ask me, you know, what do you think makes your view different? And I brought up our upcoming debate, and I said, well, I said, the full preterist asserts that judgment happened in AD 70 as do some partial preterists. And this man that I was speaking to told me he's a partial preterist. And I said, well, the only difference between you and I is that as per my understanding of the law and the prophets, every time we see judgment, we see resurrection. All throughout the law, the prophets, you see that picture weaved in and out. You know, Dr. Don K. Preston has many teachings on that. And, you know, we see this. So the full preterist is simply asserting that we, we demand a resurrection, the same res- if the judgment happened in AD 70, the resurrection of the dead therefore happened in AD 70. And, and that's what we come to as far as demand of consistency with Bible prophecy. Yeah, well, that, that's the problem then, Michael. Um, we had partial preterism, or it was just preterism. We had moderate preterism, then a strong preterism. It had no qualification until 19... 19- what it was at 71 he came out with this book his first book spirit of prophecy um and then now we have to qualify it um so yeah you built upon partial preterism the churches of christ guys they built upon partial preterism um you know foya wallace uh, wrote a commentary on revelation which is very good you can read online actually um he wasn't a full preterist but he was a church of christ guy so it, it was getting into the churches of christ Partial preterism, and now we have a consistent view, supposedly. So consistent that it's heretical, it's hyper. I mean, I, I'm using these definitions. I don't like to, I don't do my videos. I don't say hyper preterists or whatever. It's usually full preterists. And that, as I even have a friend here in town uh, uh, who's a full preterist, um, uh, I don't call him a preterist. But when we're defining terms, Theological terms, we must uh, we must do this. When you bring up consistency, I have no choice but to um, show where consistently can lead to heresy and uh, uh, and the like. Right. So, can you show me, for example, where my demand for consistency has led to heretical you know, a heretical understanding? Heretical understanding. Uh, you're, you're what again? Sorry, Michael. I'm just wondering, because you're saying that, you know, you're saying that the system brings us to, or could bring us to, um, well, it this, sounds more well, so this, that you're, no, sorry. Go I was ahead. just going to say, well, just, just, just putting the resurrection back then is it, it, heretical. Just doing that is heretical. 
But we're not going to get into that. Uh, I, I'm just saying you brought up the consistency thing, and I just wanted to make that point, that consistency we see in history, what it has done to groups and churches, the Calvinists, the, the dispensationalists. Um, um, some thought that they weren't consistent enough, that, they, that every text had a fit, and we ran into problems. And that's just the point. I don't want to make the whole show about that. Um, but, but, yeah. No, understood. So you said you had two points. You brought up one. What was the other point that you wanted to uh, bring up? Okay, this will be probably my last one, Mike. Uh, then uh, I, ha- I have a few more, but there's one I really want to get at. Okay. Um, and uh, this will be brought out in the debate as well. Um, this is going to be brought out in the debate as well. Um, but here, let me go. To Romans. Can you give me a few minutes, Michael, then the rest, yeah, sure. uh, rest of the time, you know, because I know I spoke a lot there, you answer me answering your questions, but then, yeah, you know, we'll the rest, you know, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I, uh, first we'll go to, sorry? No, go ahead, please. Okay, R- Romans chapter five, uh, Michael. All right, cool. I'm there. Okay, Romans chapter 5. And verse 2, we see the word hope, the same word hope that's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, and 4 and 4, the same Greek word, uh, hope. It's used, like I said, in the context of justification. It's also used in Colossians 1.27, union with Christ, and of course, Ephesians 4 for election. But in here, um, from verse 1 through 11, quickly, very quickly, therefore, He's talking about what happened before. Therefore, is therefore a reason. He's talking about the, the Jesus ratio or justification. Therefore, having been, past tense, justified, dikaio, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and in hope of the glory of God. And I'm just going to skip down a bit to, because I don't want to take too much time. Verse 9. What's more, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath or day of God through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved from his life. Um, maybe I will come back to this passage, because I actually wanted to start in, in with verse 3. Or chapter three. Uh, yeah, yeah. Here I'm going to come back to Romans five because Romans three, four, five. These buildings. I, I should have went straight. Uh, verses uh, nineteen through twenty-six, Michael. Okay. And I'm going to try to read this as quick as I can. Uh, not, Romans three nineteen through twenty-six. And I'm going to make a main argument here at the end after I go through this. Now, when, okay. now that's what the law says. It says it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be clo- closed, and all the world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all of sin falls of the glory of God, being justified as a gift 
by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who was faith in Jesus. Now, starting in verse 19, verse 19, he says, um, now, you know that whatever the law says, it says that we're under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable before God. Romans 1, 18 through 32 is dealing with the Gentile world. Romans 2 is dealing with, dealing with the Jewish world. In Romans 3, 9, uh, he says, what? Not at all, for all, all of charge that both the Jews and Greeks are under sin. As, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. None understands, so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, and so that ties in with verse 19. All, all mankind is, uh, all mankind is for God because they are guilty of breaking his law. That's what Paul is saying in verse 19 and 20, 19 and 20. But now, apart from the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith. Jesus Christ, all belief, all distinction. So verse one. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What he's saying there now. Now it has been manifested, God's righteousness in his son. That is what he's speaking about here. Being witnessed the law, Exodus 25 through 40. Um, speaking of the building of the tabernacle, uh, the tabernacle there. Um, Leviticus 1 through 7, those sacrifices, those daily sacrifices. And of course, Leviticus 16, the day of the Lord. These are, and in the prophets, the servant songs in Isaiah. 43, 49, Isaiah 40 through 55, all the prophets. They witnessed this coming of Mashiach, um, of Jesus. He was, he was found in the law of the prophets, but he's manifested now apart from the law. He's been manifested. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, that there is no distinction. For all have fallen, for, for all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. That's verse 9 again. Being justified, Kyle, that means to be to be declared just, to be declared justified, to be uh, to be accepted as righteous. Being justified as a gift, it's a gift by His grace, His unmerited favor, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So being justified, being declared righteous, accepted as righteous, not made righteous. Decile means to declare righteous as a gift. It's a gift from God, as we see in verse 26. God is the justifier. The whole act of justification is a monergistic act. Redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, well, that's like ransom. Um, God has ransomed us from the penalty of his law, from his wrath. How can he ransom, how can he ransom us? Well, verse 25, when God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Propitiation means he's in the wrath of God. The appeasement of wrath, that orge, that is what uh, propitiation uh, means. And we see this uh, in John as well, uh, this, this Greek. God displayed publicly, that's, that's Christ, displayed him publicly in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. That is not Jesus' righteousness, but Yahweh, God's righteousness. He's going to demonstrate his righteousness. How is he going to do that? Through propitiation. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So God's righteousness, his justice, his broken law, still had to be answered. And so in his forbearance, forbearance means he, in self-constraint. He self-constrained himself in his wrath on mankind for their sin, for breaking his law, but he poured it upon Christ as a propitiation. So that's what he's talking about there. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. That's, that's um, um, coming from verse 21, present time, past time. So that he would be just, so God would be just, God's not overlooking sin, he dealt with it with Christ, making Christ our propitiation, appeasement for wrath, so that God would be just, he's just, and the justifier of the one who is faithful to Jesus. And so God is the one who is justified. It goes on, it's where it goes. Um, but if we look here in this passage, this is, and I'll wrap this up, Michael, in this passage, it is legal courtroom. It's forensic. Language is being used. You have God, the judge. You have the law of God. Right? And you have the sinners before uh, before God, before the judge. Uh, him as a sinner, the guilty party. So this is all forensic. This is all courtroom. What this is, and in Romans 5 brings this out as well, what this is in chapter twenty, in chapter three, and in chapter five, all commentators agree, and it's very clear in the text. Very clear in the text that in Romans chapter three, Romans chapter five, in the doctrine of justification, God is bringing the verdict of the last judgment in the here and now to that believing person. That is what justification is. It is the verdict of the last judgment that right now you are declared innocent before God for, his broken, for breaking his law. It is the eschatological last judgment. It's the verdict of the eschatological last judgment. Now, here's the point. Since clearly in Romans that the doctrine of justification is the verdict of the last judgment brought into the here and now, and since you, Michael, affirm the judgment was in 87, then there is. No more justification, i.e., no more salvation for us today. Hence, we have deism of some sort. I'm finished. All right. So, uh, you, you know, just for clarity, I, I want to ask one question before I say anything. So you're asserting that when I read Romans 118 and it talks about the wrath of God being revealed, um, I read Romans chapter 2, verse 2, and I, I read about the judgment of God all the way up to Romans chapter 8, verse 19, where we read about the manifestation of the sons of God, that is all yet future to us? 
That is all yet just justification. Uh, so of of course it's it, it's it's continuing. Romans eight's a future to us, but the whole book of Romans. We still need sinners still need to be justified, Michael. <laughs> Amen, and I would agree with that. Now, actually, I want to share with you a quote. Um, you know, Maury Lee. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the works of a man named Morrison Lee. Uh, not if he's if he's uh, no, probably not. <laughs> yeah, not if he's of the heretical bunch. You could say it. It's okay. Um, so. Um, no, 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 no. Anyway, go ahead. All right. So uh, he has an article, right? The first one, he has a two-part article. And the first article is about the cause of judgment that was necessary in AD 70. And he, he writes some great things. And then the second part of the article is actually why the cause of judgment or the bringing about of God's judgment in AD 70 was sufficient. And it's a rather good article. And he makes a good point. He quotes... Isaac Newton. And Isaac Newton, when he had written about, uh, about Bible prophecy, he said this. He said, the design of God in giving the prophecies of the Old Covenant, and obviously this follows in the New Testament as well, in the New Testament, um, not to gratify men's curiosities by enabling them to foreknow things, meaning things in the future, but that afterward they, would, they were fulfilled, they might be interpreted by the event. And his own providence, not the interpreters, being, the mani being manifested to the world. For the event of things predicted many ages before will then be a convincing argument that the world is governed by the providence of God. And I read that because it seems that many people fail to understand how God's prophet prophecies work. They're not given to men to give men a future event to wait for. They're given to men so that when events happen, men might have an explanation for the future. And when the full preterist looks at A.D. 70, we see a very necessary and sufficient judgment of God that applies to everything you had just remarked with Romans 1 through 8 about the justification and the redeeming or the, um, I'm sorry, the manifestation of the sons of God. We look back to that A.D. 70 event and we say, wow, God made it very clear how man is justified and how man is not justified. And he made it very clear how men become son, men and women become sons of God. That's the manifestation of the sons of God. It was not by way of that temple system that was declared, that old covenant system, which was put asunder. It's through Jesus Christ, as you simply asserted before. So I have an agreement with that. However, I think where me and you disagree is how we would understand judgment of God. Again, I don't see the need for a yet future event. I see the need for understanding the past event that happened and then gaining your understanding of how to be justified in the sight of God through that, which again was very clear as the Christian church was surviving in the mountains of Pella, that it was by heeding the words of Jesus Christ that men would be saved, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, be justified in Christ. So we're in agreement as far as the justification in Christ. We're just in disagreement about how we would come to understand prophetic events. Well, Michael, no, I guarantee you, you don't want to agree with me with the doctrine of justification. I guarantee you that for sure. Um, that, I mean, there's, there's only a can hold in your uh, corporate body view. Um, uh, that's simply not possible. Um, but um, again, you, you, you talked about manifestation. Well, the manifestation I brought up was Romans 3.21. Again, you went to Romans 8, 
which is not gospel. The gospel is presented back. You've got to go back. He's making one logical argument, Paul, in Romans. Romans 3 through 5 is gospel. That's where we get gospel, justification, adoption, all that. And adoption is found again in Romans 8. But it, we're talking to adoption within the realms of justification. God if the judgment if the judgment's in the past and not just the covenant of eschatology, the individual body view, which well all full predators across the board, if the judgment is in the past, then there's no way there can be any justification for sinners today. There's no way. Because the because justification is bringing a future event into the person's life here and now. If that is done, then so is justification. See, and that's what I just said. I, I, I think our area of disagreement here is how we come to understand prophetic events. You're saying that the way that that becomes a reality is that I must go through a yet future event to understand justification. I would tell you that proper understanding of prophecy is that you look to the event and you understand what God has established. That's how the Israel, again, all throughout your Bible, the, the way that Israel came to understand God's judgment was by looking back to the Exodus. They constantly applied that to their theology. And what the full preterist is asserting is that that second exodus that happened in the first century is the judgment by way that we understand justification today. So I can say that you are justified in Christ today. And I can, through a proper understanding of the way Bible prophecy is used, I believe that that is very evident. So that's, you know, and again, I do want to say, um, I think I disagree with your qualification of what the gospel is and where the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel and where he's not. Because the gospel, again, is the pronunciation, right? If we're using that term there, uh, what's the, oh boy, it's slipping my mind right now. However, the term gospel is the enunciation of the kingdom of God. And that's found all throughout the book of Romans. Right? To say that Romans 8 is not attached to Romans 1, that's to just simply bring about the divisions that came about in the Middle Ages in the Book of Romans. This is a letter written to the church at Rome. Let's understand that it's that. But Mike, Michael, have you ever studied the Book of Romans? Or you, you don't understand that there's structure in every book of the Bible? Oh, there's sure. Different, there's different sections and structure? Absolutely. I there's, sure do. Well, I mean, um, as I said, Romans 3, re reading it, exegeting it in that way, in any way, there's no way to get around the fact. That this is legal, it's a courtroom language, forensic language, legal language, where it's the judgment of the last day. And we have the verdict for it right now because it, in chapter 5, after he says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God for Lord Jesus Christ. He says, through whom we have obtained this, our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and exalt in the hope of the glory of God. That's Romans 8. They exalted in the, the glory of God because of their justification. So if there's no justification today, then there's, I mean, it, 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 it just does not work. Going down to verse 9 and 10, or verse 9, much more have now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath of God through him. That again is for language. Uh, we'll be saved from wrath. Him. So there's wrath, 118, so on and so forth. We're going to be safe from wrath. Uh, so, so, but, um, 
yeah, because of this truth, he says we can exult in the hope of the glory of God because we have been justified. But if the, if the judgment if the judgment has already taken place, what you said it did in AD seventy, then no Christian today, no person today, because there's no Christian today, no one can make that statement. They can exult in the glory of God. No one can make that statement. Or no one can, no one can make and have peace with God. Because there's no justification today. Because there's no judgment today. The, the judgment's passed. That's the problem, Michael. That's the problem. Right. So, uh, you know, it's interesting and because we've marked out... It's a doozy of a problem. Well, I would agree that it's a problem. I think the problem is with the way that you're understanding Bible prophecy, though. That's that, that's where we're, we're getting an issue here. Um, I'm marking out a couple no. issues. Okay. Go ahead. No, no, sure. No, no, go ahead, Mike. Okay, so I, I wrote down a couple things. Obviously, an area that you and I are clearly coming into debate is when we look at Romans chapters 1 through 8. I'm going to include all the way up to chapter 8. Um, it seems that you and I would disagree on how to understand and interpret that text. So that's something that prayerfully people will be able to look forward to from us is a good exegesis of the details there from in Romans chapters 1 through you could go as far as you want. I would like to attach Romans chapters 1 through 8. You can simply assert Romans 1 through 5. Um, so I'm going to do that. I also believe the thing that me and you are marking out is that how we understand Bible prophecy. I don't believe that in order to be justified, I have to participate in a yet future judgment. I don't believe that that's a correct assessment of the way we understand Bible prophecy or the way the Jews understood Bible prophecy. So I would, I would say that, that we need to qualify our understandings of how we're interpreting prophecy and your demand that in order to be justified, I must go through a yet future judgment. That's something I would need you to prove. You'd have to qualify well, I, that. I, I, just, I just did Romans 3. Romans 3 proves it without a shadow of a doubt. Go ahead. I, what, just, what text did you say text, in Romans 3? Do you, want me to, do you want me to exegete the text again? Well, I don't want you to do it right now, the whole explanation, but I well, want you to just point Michael, me right Michael, to Michael, for, for, for the sake of brevity, for the sake of brevity, again, courtroom language, legal courtroom language. You have God the judge. You have mankind as sinners. You have a law that has been broken by all of mankind. Some men are pronounced guilty. Some are pronounced righteous. This is the last judgment being spoken of. The last judgment being spoken of. This is the judgment of Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment spoken of. It's the judgment being brought in the here and now. That's what it is. We're, we're pronounced not guilty, and we have peace with God. We are raised, seated in heavenly places. So this is this is what it is. It's 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 the judgment being pronounced on us right now. We we can lay our heads down on our pillows knowing. That we are fully justified because we have the merits of Christ clothing us, covering us. God doesn't see us in our wickedness. He sees the righteousness of Christ. His blood shed in our place for forgiveness of sins. His act of obedience to the law credited to our account. So that not only are we sinless, but we're perfectly righteous. We perfectly obey the law of God. Um, and that is credited, imputed, legizomai, imputed to our account. And then we stand before God and we have peace with God and we can exult in the hope of the glory of God. That's the, the resurrection. That's the, the judgment. Uh, 
that's that's what it is. So if the judgment and resurrection already takes taken place, Romans three twenty one to twenty six, Romans five one and two, and there's no justification, no life today for sinners. Right. It sounds so easy when you assert uh, make doctrinal assertions. However, um, the the problem I would bring up because I would agree a lot with a lot of what you just said. The problem would be in how we're understanding how Bible prophecy must be understood, because, again, I'm not seeing in, in this text. I get that it's courtroom setting. Absolutely. Um, what I'm not seeing is that I need to. Mike Miano needs to go through this courtroom setting, which when we bring up time text and we attach Romans chapter one to other texts that it's going to necessarily be attached to the demand for a coming of the Lord as per the time text, the demand for the judgment to be revealed as per the time text, um, you know, again, when we get into that discussion, which our debate is going to afford, again, I'm going to simply make the assertion that I would agree with some of the things you're saying about justification. I'm just not agreeing with your false qualifiers. I'm not agree with, you know, what you're demanding that this text says, you know, the full preterist so, again, we, we go ahead. No. How do you understand the courtroom language, Michael? Well, again, when I go through Romans chapter, first off, I'll say this. Um, I've done a study recently on Romans chapters 1 through 8, and when I read it, I, I see a very, the focal point there, understanding the context of the church at Rome in A.D., uh, let's say A.D. Uh, 60, a little bit after A.D. 64, um, understanding the situation there, and then understanding why the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome, what he's correcting right from the beginning, talking about how he would not have them to be ignorant about the gospel that he's been proclaiming among the Gentiles, ultimately moving into all the details of the wrath of God being revealed, which I would make the case that Romans chapter one is talking about the wrath of God being revealed to those who had the truth and unrighteousness, which was not all mankind. It was those to whom the oracles of God had been given, which was Israel. And I would make the case that as you read and you pay attention to pronouns from Romans chapters one through eight, that you would understand that this judgment being spoken about was going to happen as per time texts in the first century. And it brought salvation to the Jew and to the Gentile through okay. Jesus Christ. Okay, so if, okay, if it happened in eighty seventy, there's there's no more justification today. I mean that that's we we, we have deism, Mike Michael. We no. have deism. No, we don't. And because I can again, I can, you, I can define deism for the for the listeners if they need me to. Uh, go for it. Yeah. Well, well, deism is just. The guy in the sky. That's what he is. He's the, atheism says no God, agnostic, not sure, probably not. Uh, theism, there's no personal God. Uh, deism, there's no personal God. He got the ball rolling, and he doesn't care about humanity, not at all. He just sits up there. You know, that's deism. Right. And that's what we have. If there's no, if there's no future judgment, then there's no justification. They are tied together. They, they, cannot, they cannot be separated. They, they're completely tied together. The doctrine of justification and judgment are tied together big time. Big time. It's forensic. There's no way around it. All right. Well, I'll tell you, I wrote that down. I like that quote. If there's no future judgment, there is no justification. And therefore, you're asserting if there's no justification, then I'm guilty of deism. Yeah, the, the, that, was, that was one of my main arguments after I was going to exegete, do my exegesis of Romans 1, 16 through 5 through 11. And of course, I wouldn't be able to cover all that, but, you know, go, go through certain uh, texts that I felt needed to be touched. 
because that's that's that would take uh, hours to go through that section. But um, uh, but yeah, uh, what was it going to say? I forget what it was going to say there, Mike. What did you say? I just said that I wrote down your quote about there being no future judgment. If the, I mean, there's no if there's no future judgment, there's no justification, yeah. and if there's no justification, therefore, I'm guilty of deism. That's your assertion, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I say, that was going to be kind of the icing on the cake argument for the for the debate. But you you can have a couple months uh, to chew on it, right? And you know, <laughs> work at. Well, I'll tell you what. This is what my perspective is going to be. Obviously, I'm accusing you of uh, improper understanding of how biblical prophecy would be understood. Um, I don't believe that the way that the Jews would have understood prophetic events was that we need to participate in them in order to have the effect of them. I believe that the justification was made very clear in the first century, and that justification continues even up till this day. And I do not believe by any means in a deistic or a, uh, in a deistic no, perspective no, 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 that God no. simply sits above. No, 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 no. I'm not, I, I don't want people to, or you to think that I'm accusing you of being a deist. I, I, not at all. Okay. I know, you know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that logically would follow. Uh, right. If the I get that. That's all I'm saying, Michael. Yeah, I get that. And, you know, one thing I believe most people that are watching this, I know from on my end, and I'm imagining on yours as well, um, most people that will entertain our debate and will watch it, um, they know that we're not entering in this to be nasty to each other. I don't believe anybody's edified in such a way. So no, no, no. Uh, I just I get kind of uh, I get kind of hyper and excited when I'm. Uh, that's cool. When I'm uh, in discussion, even my buddy Larry, who's in my in my town, Larry Hamilton, uh, who's a full predators and. We get into some good, you know, a little heated, but we're, we're still friends, right? You know. But, Amen. No, that's I right. Be, you know, I don't want to be contentious or anything like that, Michael. I just want no, I, to get going. Uh, <laughs> I get kind of excited once we get going. <laughs> right. So you know what? It's good that we set the precedent now. That because I'm like that as well, and I totally understand that. You know what, Joel? Oh, I'm no, telling I, you, this is what I. I don't mean to be, you know, rude or anything. I just get excited when I, uh, you know, especially with the gospel. Uh, I get right. get pretty excited. Rightfully okay. so. Rightfully so. You know, I'll tell you what, I, I think you and I are of a similar breed there because I picture this as me and you sitting in my living room, hanging out. And imagine if this came up, imagine what would happen. You know, me and you would end up passionate, probably yelling at each other in the living room. And uh, that's okay. You know, as no, you know, our attitude. Uh, we go that far, Michael. <laughs> I'm telling you, I've gotten into it. I'll tell you what, this is something you and I would agree on. I'm in Las Vegas with a friend of mine, my best friend. He's an atheist. And uh, we're in Las Vegas, and we wake up in the morning, and I was there for a, a church event. And I look out my window, you know, in the hotels, they have that big window. And I look out the window, and I don't know if you've ever been to Vegas, have you? No, no, no. Okay, so uh, the, no, no. the mountains of Nevada are amazing, brother. They are. They're amazing. So I look out of my window, and I'm like, wow, how can you see that and not believe in God? And forgetting that my best friend sitting there, you know, he just starts mumbling under his breath. And it started one of our first official arguments. And we went back and forth probably for like an hour and a half, ended up getting heated with each other. And uh, we got over it. We're buddies. So, you know, so I entertain our discussion in a similar fashion. Well, you're pretty laid back, Mike. I'm pretty laid back, but I mean, like, I do get excited when uh, I'm in these discussions and whatnot, and uh, especially, I do get excited in general when we're discussing whatever. But when it comes to the gospel, especially because 
the purity of the gospel has been lost today. Um, that Amen. The, the Pauline gospel, the gospel of Paul and the gospel that Peter preached and the apostles and uh, the reformers, Luther, uh, Melanchthon, uh, Calvin, uh, what they preached has been lost today. Has been lost yeah. today. The purity of the gospel that it was saved solely by the work, the doing and dying of Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, the beautiful picture there, Michael in Romans 5, 1 through 11, we're continually being pronounced right throughout our life. We're continually being, not that we're continually being justified, we're continually being looked at, at, looked at as righteous. As verse 11 says, he's reconciled us, but he's done something else for us. Uh, he will be saved by wrath his life because he's our high priest now. He intercedes on our behalf, Romans 8, verse 34, I believe. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just the gospel, uh, the gospel that we see today in the church is not the gospel of, uh, um, of the early church or of, uh, uh, the, of the uh, Right, they, they pretty much picked it up and uh, revived the gospel of grace. You know. Right. So I want to end. Our, I'm going to bring us to a close here, but I want to ask you two quick questions. Or actually, I want to tell you something, and then I want to ask you a question if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, the first thing is, is now that you know. Well, yeah. Now that you know that I'm going to be placing a lot of emphasis on the fact that. You believe that there needs to be a future judgment in order for justification to be a reality, right? I believe it's fair to throw back sort of uh, what my my position is going to be, so that you can, as you said, chew on that for you know leading up to our debate. So I mean, I, I, yeah, I didn't plan. Uh, no, I don't mean to cut you off, Michael, but I didn't plan on really uh, speaking on that tonight. But I, I, I felt, you know, why not? You know. Um, you know, that was, besides my exegesis leading into that, that was my ending argument, you know. Uh, so I kind of, yeah, that's a kind of a pre-debate. Okay. Bonus, I guess. I don't know what you call well, it. I would charge, again, would, just so you know where I'm going to be coming from, I would charge that I, your understanding of the biblical event, the prophetic event, um, is in error. That's what I'm going to argue. And then my second point is going to be, obviously, that... Once we understand how biblical prophetic events occur and are fulfilled, that we can see justification in Christ. So that's where I'll be coming from. And I'll just charge you with an inconsistent or a stretched out perspective of the things in the Bible. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, my last point I wanted to ask you about. I believe you'd be a knowledgeable guy to talk about. This is a little off topic, but I think you'd be a knowledgeable guy to ask about. What do you make of the charge when people say things like James and Paul had a different gospel or Peter and Paul had a different gospel? How do you begin that discussion? Well, I, I just posted an article there yesterday. I did an article, uh, um, posted it on my wall there uh, on mid-acts dispensationalism because that's what they teach. Hmm. Um, uh, let me see if I can find it here, Mike. Uh, right. Just wait, very briefly, just find the title of it. Uh, I think I'm it up myself. Might be on my other page, my Justified Sinner page there. 
I just want to get the title of it here. Okay, here we go. And I'll send this to you, Michael. Um, and anyone that wants to read it, it's just a short piece, uh, but it'll be very informative for those that run into uh, it acts dispensationalists. Um, did Peter and Paul preach two different gospels? A short refutation of mid-act for hyperdispensation. Um, and so, what what were you what were you getting at, though, Michael? Were you getting the mid-act dispensational, the hyperdispensational understanding, or are you saying like is that where you were coming from with that question? No, it's more so. Um, there's some that would argue that James was, you know, obviously, you know, that he was the a high priest there in Jerusalem, and uh, yeah, yeah, he yeah. came from a, a Paul coming from a grace message after his conversion. Some would say that James did not preach the same grace message that the Apostle Paul preached; that he was more of a legalist. And obviously, they use the text in James where James says, uh, you know, about faith and works. Obviously, that you're not saved by your faith alone, but by you know, it must be shown by your works. And uh, they try to argue that James is a bit of a legalist. Yeah, James two fourteen through twenty four. Well, the Catholics do the same, but they don't. The, 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 Rome does the same, but they don't think uh, Peter and Paul preach two different things. They say, well, the the the, uh, the Protestant has Romans four wrong. Well, the Catholics say, or well, the Protestant would say James, or the Catholics have James wrong. But you're, just very briefly, I'll just say this: um, if we go to James one eighteen first, two fourteen through twenty four, that's the text. But I'll say no, they didn't. But the two texts that people will refer to is Romans 1 through 8 and James 2, 14 through 24. Those two passages are the two passages that are used to show, because they both used Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, as an example. And they both used the Greek word dikaio and dikaio kune as well, justify and justified. Um, so, hmm. um, so there's a connection there, but yeah, just going That's to James, yeah, just going to James, uh, let me see here. James 1.18, I think it is, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be the first fruits of his creation, creation. So right here in James, James 1.18, he says, in, in, in the exercise of his will, that's the will of God, that's like Ephesians 1, um, his will in, in election, Ephesians 1, verse 11. In his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So this is God's sovereign act when God sovereignly brought them um, he, through by his will, by, by his divine will, he brought, brought them forth. They were uh, born again, is what James is saying. He brought them forth again by the word of truth. You see in Romans 10, 12, people are saved by the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. And so here James is on the same page as Paul. Paul in Romans 3 says twice, as I read in verse 24, that God is... Uh, God is the justifier, Romans uh, 3.26, and he, and justification is a gift. Paul, or James here, is saying the same thing, that God mm -hmm. sovereignly, uh, sovereignly brought us anew in Christ through the preaching right. of the gospel. 
So then when we get to chapter two, the way the way we look at it is this. Paul is dealing Paul is dealing with heavenly things, as as uh, some of the uh, Lutheran dog, dogmaticians would uh, say. He's looking at heavenly things. James is looking at earthly things. There's vertical, Romans 4 is vertical, God, man's relation to God in, in judgment. James 2, man's relation to man. Um, so that's pretty much how I would understand those passages, uh, Michael. Hmm. Yeah, those are some good passages. I appreciate that. I knew you'd be a good guy to ask. So, Joel, you know, before I let you go, do you mind if I pray for us? Just wait, Mike. If you look at them that way, that, that Paul in Romans is speaking vertically, our relation to God, James is speaking our relation to, to man, that then the, the text, there's no contradiction. Right, yeah, right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cool. That's a good point, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, all right. So let's pray, man. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord, for uh, the opportunity tonight to mark out some differences, to talk a little bit about our upcoming debate, Lord, and to talk about the gospel. Um, yes, Lord, Joel and I are not in agreement on all things, Lord, and we might not be in agreement about some very necessary details. Um, Lord, however, your grace is extended far beyond our understanding, Lord. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. So we do indeed thank you for such a grace. We thank you that you would give us a spirit that would allow us to be desirous and diligent in searching your truth, Lord, so that we would understand all things pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, I pray for my brother Joel. I pray that uh, as we both understand the struggles of life. I just pray that you allow us more and more opportunity to set our eyes on you, to set our eyes on things that are above, Lord, things that are peaceable, yeah. things that are loving, gentle, leading to self-control, leading to godliness, and that we might yeah. glorify you in all things, Lord. Um, Lord, I do indeed thank you for my brother. I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you that uh, we're not perfect, but you are God. And um, that we might glorify you through our words, our actions, our treatment of each other, and that... Uh, we may gain a better understanding of, of your truth and how we've come to understand your truth, Lord. So uh, thank you, Lord. I, I pray uh, blessings in my brother's life. I pray that you go before him in this debate and that you allow him to uh, glorify you through his study, through his life, and through his efforts. Um, Lord, we magnify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All well, right, thank man. You, well, thank, thank you very much. Hey. Do you have anything you want to say or any questions that you, you have of me uh, as we close? No, that's fine, Michael. I think we uh, right, took cool. up enough time there. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you. I appreciate your time I and I uh, look forward to talking with you more. Yeah. Okay, Michael. Take care. Godspeed. Take care. All right. Well, that was Mr. Joel Sexton, and that was a great conversation. God, I know you surely are glorified. I do pray for our listeners. I pray that you go in peace. Um, I usually like to send everybody off with a bit of a benediction, so I find it fitting to just assert the benediction that we read in our daily common prayer. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you here again rejoicing at the wonders that he has shown you. May he bring you here rejoicing once again into our doors. Go in peace, saints. Thank you again for tuning in. I pray that you are edified and God was glorified.